over the summer period has been from Zephaniah on the day of the Lord. We're coming to the last chapter and to be honest I don't know where we're going to get to today. I hope to get through it all. To save time I'm actually going to skip over reading the verses before so in a moment I'm going to get David to jump those down to this title again but our title for this morning should be number five is Mercy for the Faithful. Once again, there is judgment involved, this time focusing on Jerusalem, although it also goes on to mention the nations. Uh, but as we deal with that, we find that he is going to deal with those who have remained faithful, those who have turned their hearts, as he said in chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, David, if we can just jump down to that last slide past all these verses. It just will take me a bit if I have to flick through. I can do it. Okay, now we're back to it. You did it and I went further. There we go. Paul Apple says this, the love of the Lord for his people is amazing. When set against the backdrop of unfaithfulness and rebellion, the history of Jerusalem in the Old Testament is not a pretty one. There are only patches of obedience and faithfulness amidst extended periods of spiritual adultery and defilement. Yet the covenant-keeping God remains righteous and just while working out his kingdom program. There will be the need for purification, but there will also be tremendous blessing when the king returns to triumphantly reign from her midst. We read this in Isaiah 62, 1 and 2. I know many commentators today will say that this is the church it's speaking of. I'm sorry, I can't but take it literally, and I don't apologize for that. He says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate. Although we share in the kingdom blessings, the focus on Israel, specifically naming Jerusalem, is a promise, a covenant-keeping promise from God that these things will happen. But first, he highlights some things, and we're going to look at the passage in two major segments with two other major groups underneath those. The first is that verses 1 to 8 show us the lessons of judgment. What do we learn from observing the judgment of God, whether we're the recipients or whether somebody else is? 
What we find is, uh, secondly, in verses 9 to 20, the blessings of repentance. Coming back to the lessons of judgment, we find in verses 1 to 5, Jerusalem judged. And then in verses 6 to 8, the nations judged, and we learn what the purpose of it is. And then as we come to the second part, the blessings of repentance, we find that there is a purified remnant, both of the nations and of Israel. And then, of course, there's a key part of the witness of his purpose, as we read at the beginning in Isaiah 64, uh, Israel will be restored. And we look at that in verses 14 to 20. Let's start with the lessons of judgment. He's described the judgment of the surrounding nations. So Zephaniah returns to his denouncement of Jerusalem. The prophet's attack takes the form of a woe pronouncement. Whenever you find that in the Old Testament, woe, God's declaring uh, against the peoples. David Levy notes this, Perhaps no city on earth is more loved than Jerusalem. The psalmist has well written, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. We used to sing back in the 60s and 70s. There was a, a chorus that we sang from that, that verse. And God said in Ezekiel 5.5, Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. Moses, the great lawgiver, said that when God gave the nations their boundaries, he did so in relation to Israel in Deuteronomy 32.8. Jerusalem is the city of God, the capital of Judah, the sanctuary of spiritual life and the joy of the whole earth to the Jew. And as David Levy says, never could Jerusalem's princes or people envision its destruction, especially by her pagan neighbours. Here only had God placed his name and revealed his law to the world. Here only was God truly worshipped. And here only stood the great temple of Solomon, wherein dwelt God's Shekinah glory. But we're going to find Jerusalem will be judged. It was and it will be. As John MacArthur notes, because of that city's favoured position among the nations, more was expected. We read in Exodus 19.5, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. But they were accountable. And the nation by this time has descended into pagan idolatry, as we've been looking at, as we've gone through the book. And we find that Jerusalem is really listed as wicked Jerusalem. As Warren Wearsby notes, Jerusalem is commonly called the holy city, but in Zephaniah's day, the city didn't manifest much holiness. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel gave the same assessment in their day. And even the Gentiles in Ezra 4 call it the rebellious and wicked city, and they could cite proof for their statement. And so Zephaniah goes on to describe in verse 1, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the tyrannical 
or oppressing city. And the word for tyrannical or oppressing there is from the Hebrew word yonah, meaning to do wrong to someone. You see, instead of being holy, the city was filthy and polluted because of shameful sin. And instead of bringing peace, the city of peace, Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city was guilty of rebellion and oppression. God gave his people the revelation of himself in his word and in his mighty acts, but they didn't believe or seek him. Verse 2 says, She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. They pretended to worship and serve God. But in their hearts... They had rejected him and continued to be complacent about their sins. They no longer cared about the consequences of turning away from God. It is a picture of arrogant pride. She'd become defiant toward God, ignoring the lessons suffered by the ten northern tribes of Israel. She put her faith in pagan gods, in military power, and in her own cunning wisdom, and in alliances with pagan nations. That all comes about because of godless leadership. The entirety of the leadership in Judah, both civic, that is the princes and judges, and religious, the prophets and priests, is pictured as corrupt. We find that the civil leaders are seen as greedy. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. As Warren Wisby notes, God expected the civil and religious leaders of the land to take his words seriously and like ravenous beasts in the way they oppressed the people and took what they wanted from them. Can you picture you know, Jesus' anger twice in the Gospels, once at the beginning of his ministry and once towards the end of his ministry? He upturns the tables of the, uh, of the, uh, the money changers. Why? Because they were ripping them off. They were using false scales and they were giving inflated prices to the poor. And so here, already before Jesus comes, before this time, and still they haven't, 400 years later, the four, 500 years later, they still hadn't learned the lesson. And uh, Zephaniah is declaring the consequences of that. And he says the religious leaders are profane. Her prophets are reckless treacherous men her priests have profaned the sanctuary they have done violence to the law they were unfaithful to the lord and his word and they dealt treacherously with the people they didn't proclaim god's truth in effect they only preached what they wanted the people wanted to hear and their ministry was toxic and it polluted the sanctuary it wasn't pleasing to god isaiah says a similar thing in isaiah 56:11 and the dogs are greedy, they are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all tuned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain, to the last one. I was sharing with someone during the week who's come through a background of, uh, of prosperity teaching churches and became very disillusioned when they realised what these leaders in these churches were doing. They were ripping off their own people and uh, that he was not seeing the fulfillment of what they were teaching. 
is in a process of recovery and working through where he now, how he now understands the word of God. In contrast to the leadership in Jerusalem, in verse 5, he turns to look at the righteous God in a direct contrast. The Lord is righteous within her. He will do no injustice. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. They don't care, but God cares about righteousness and justice. It's a stark contrast to the people and the civil and religious leaders of Judah. Judah, with, her t- with the temple in her midst in Jerusalem, had the reminder of God's presence. His character and actions are in contrast to its leaders. As David Levy says, his Shekinah glory filling Solomon's temple was a continual sign and reminder of his holiness and righteousness to the nation. God's righteousness and justice were shown through the daily sacrifices which revealed his judgment against sin and pointed to man's need of redemption. But they ignored it. Yet they had seen nations judged. This is not speaking of the future judgment. It, uh, uh, it is speaking of judgments they had already seen in verse 6, in verses 6 to 8. Judah and Israel had seen many examples uh, of the judgment that God's warning is, as he treated the nations. He says in verse 6, I have cut off nations, their corner towers are in ruins. I have made their streets desolate with no one passing by. Their cities are laid waste without a man, without an inhabitant. If this is not looking forward to the judgment coming, it's looking back. Who is it looking to? Well, he'd cut off the surrounding nations who committed gross sin through Joshua's conquest of the land of Canaan. You know, God hated the, the, the pollution of the Canaanites. You'll see it all throughout the Old Testament. And again in 722 BC, when the Assyrians destroyed the northern ten tribes of Israel, their towers pro- proved to be an inadequate defense against the invading nations. As David mentioned, God raises up and he, he put, tears down the nations for his purpose. John MacArthur notes uh, these were to serve as warnings to Judah, meant to turn his people back to him. Another says the inhabitants of Jerusalem should have taken note and repented to avoid being punished as well. Instead, they continued to act corruptly. That had a lesson. They had seen the faithfulness and the righteousness and the holiness and the power of God, but they refused. They went the way they wanted to go. And so verse 7 says the lesson was unheeded. I said, really taking a form of an anthropomorphism where he speaks like he were us rather than God. He says, I said, surely you will revere me and accept instruction. So her dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed concerning her. But, but, they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. You see, God's chastisement of other nations should have brought the people of Judah to their senses and caused them to turn back to him. 
Instead, enticed by the fruits of corruption, the people rose early to pursue the way of sin zealously and deliberately becoming more persistent and eager in the pursuit of sin. And he gives us a little glimpse of hope in verse 8. He says, wait for me. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. And, and you need to put this verse back with chapter 2, verse 3, of, uh, of those who are faithful looking to him. And therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations to assemble kingdoms. As Warren Rearsby notes, the Lord continued, concludes his message to Jerusalem by describing a courtroom scene in which he stands to testify against his people. While the impending Babylonian captivity is involved here, he says there is also an end times application in the Battle of Armageddon. When the nations of the world converge against Jerusalem, and by the way, take note of the nations that are aligning together, Russia, Iran, Turkey etc., that are, that are uh, working together in unprecedented ways even in our lifetime. Um, you know, you might have wondered in the past about such an alignment. They seem a disparate groups, and they are, but they're serving the same purposes together as they come uh, with an eye on Israel. And God will pour out his wrath upon these nations, deliver his people and establish his kingdom. His jealous anger will burn like fire against all who resist his truth and disobey his word. The terrible day of the Lord will dawn and there will be no escape. The rest of verse 8 says, To pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, will be, uh, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. This is not talking of the final consummation, the final burning of all of the earth in that sense. This is the judgment fire uh, on the day of the Lord when Jesus returns. As David Levy notes, in the midst of judgment, God provided a word of hope to a righteous remnant of Jews within the nation. The Lord said, wait upon me. They were to wait and not lose hope during the time of judgment when all seemed lost. The remnant who waited in Zephaniah's day prefigured a remnant of Jews whom God will supernaturally protect through the tribulation period and deliver when Christ returns. You see passages like Isaiah 30 verse 18. He says to them, therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all who long for him. That is true of the church, but it's also true of believing Israel. Of the Messianic beliefs, Jewish people of today. God longs to bring that through. And he will in his promises. And that brings us to the blessings of repentance. Zephaniah concludes his book with a message of hope. This concluding section unveils the blessings of restoration for God's people and the nations. Despite the seriousness of the warning of judgment, the day of the Lord should inspire hope in the righteous because it brings about their restoration. First, we see the purified remnant. 
There is a sense in Zephaniah that the remnant of both the nations and Israel or Judah are a very separate and holy people. First, we'll look at the nations. Verse 9, and this, this took me a lot of working during the week. Who's, when he says you, who is he speaking of? And, and there's a blending as it comes through. But it says, For then I will give to the people's purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. John Hanna in the Bible Knowledge Commentary says the word then in verse 9 signifies a major pivot in the prophet's message both in tone and in content. He shifted from frightful predictions of destruction to prophecies of blessing and peace. After destroying the nation's army, God will restore the nations to his favour. Instead of horrifying threats, here are comforting promises of love, mercy and restoration. These promises, as Hannah notes, look forward to the millennium when Christ will rule as king on the earth. The Lord promises to purify the people's lips, take them under his refuge, and fill the earth with righteousness. Now, some suggest that it's speaking of a restored, pure language, perhaps Hebrew, but, or perhaps some sort of heavenly language. I don't think that's the point here. The point is that they will have pure, clean speech, cleansed to call upon the name in true worship and to serve him together with one heart. The word uh, uh, serve together with one shoulder. Sure. Oh, I missed Isaiah 6, 7. Yep. Okay. to serve him shoulder to shoulder, Shechem is a figure drawn from the use of a yoke whereby two animals could be linked together and serve as one. What did Jesus say? Take my yoke upon you, for it is light and easy to bear. Uh, there's a picture that we will be yoked together in worship. Too much in our culture, worship is about individualism, and there is an individual element in worship. But we come together to acknowledge equally before the Lord. We're yoked together to serve, and this is what's going to be characteristic of the millennium. The Lord promises to do that. In Isaiah 6-7 we read, and remember when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord in the temple, he says, woe is me, I'm a, a people of unclean lips. I'm an, a man of unclean lips among a people of unclips. How can I stand before God? even though he was God's uh, prophet. And the angel has to bring a coal, picks up a coal out, of the, uh, out from the altar, the hot coal, and he presses it against his lips. It's a symbol of healing. He says, he touched my mouth with it, burning coal from the altar, and said, behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. The nations had polluted speech, worshipping pagan gods. But now they will have pure speech, cleansed to put call upon the name of the Lord in worship and serve in one heart. Verse 10 says, From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshippers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. The scattered people here refers to Jews dispersed beyond remotest parts of the earth. Ethiopia was in Zephaniah's mind the, the most distant part that he could think of. And uh, 
they'll return from different distant places. However, the prophecy may look beyond a strictly Jewish restoration. It does seem to correspond with a prediction by David that Ethiopians would someday stretch out their hands to God. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will be quick to stretch out her hands to God. And we read in Isaiah 66, 20. Uh, too quick. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations. So the Gentiles are involved in bringing the Jews back, helping them back to the land as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules and on camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the household of the Lord. And that's what I picture is going on here, is that yes, the Jews are being brought back, but it's the Gentiles, the, the redeemed Gentiles are helping bring them back uh, as an offering to the Lord. As it, as it talks, he will, they will bring my offerings. Of Israel... When the terrible day of the Lord is over, by faith upon a new nation, believe in him and enter into a new life in the promised kingdom. Isaiah 4.3 says, It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. It's just like being recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life, but this is specifically for the uh, remnant of the Jews that are, uh, have placed their faith and trust in him. And we have a number of characteristics about this new is, uh, newly restored remnant of the Jews. There will be no shame in that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. No shame because they are forgiven and purged of sin. They are of a forgiven, purified and restored people. Here is God's mercy and grace to the repentant. And there will be no haughtiness. You know, I was talking with, we were talking with a family member just uh, not so long ago um, and just something about Israel, and uh, you know, he made a disparaging comment uh, about Jews being arrogant. Now, you may have uh, encountered some that have a haughty attitude. You'll find them in our own culture as well. Um, but they won't be like this. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exalting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my mountain. Why were they haughty? Because they, were, they had focused on their own self-sufficiency. And why is anyone haughty in our own culture? Because we're so self-righteous. And, and this redeemed remnant are not going to be like that. They will be humbled. There will be no haughtiness. In fact, it says, they will, verse 12 says, um, But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people. You know, if you're not lowly, if you're not humble, and by the way, this is a challenge to each of us as believers. Ever notice that you have a tendency to look down upon some people? The poor and downtrodden. Oh, their circumstances, because look, look at the foolish decisions they've made. Well, there are people who are homeless today that were uh, gainfully employed, happily going along, 
and life circumstances changed. It wasn't a choice that they made. Your haughtiness looks down upon people. Every time you feel that rising within, just take a check. <laughs> just take a measure of, whoops, where's the mirror? <laughs> I'm getting haughty, I'm getting proud. David said it before in the communion as he reflected, um, you know, you give me more than I deserve. No, you don't give me what I deserve because I deserve the opposite. You see, we ought to look in the mirror whenever we feel that spirit of haughtiness coming. It's not of God. It is the boastful pride of life that Satan uh, promised us. And we need to take heed. And the remnant of Israel, it says, the remnant of Israel will be a transformed people. Let's just have a look at step by step quickly. There's further description. There will be no sin. It will do no wrong. Sin will be removed. It will be a time of deep repentance and confession that will lead to salvation. We looked at this verse in Zechariah 12.10 when we were going through Zechariah. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Him whom they have pierced as a people, as a nation. And they have this remnant, this third of the nation comes to recognize, oh, our Messiah's already been and we crucified him. Now, it wasn't just the Jews that crucified him. Romans were involved. You and I, our sins were involved. So don't point the finger at the Jewish people. But they recognized, this remnant recognized. And it says, and there will be no deception, no lies. Okay. And tell no lies. They will have honest speech. This suggests that all love of idolatry will be taken from their hearts for idols are lies and to worship them is to practice deception and see there's no deception nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their midst and the most beautiful of all is this there will be no fear for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble you see during the tribulation there they're, they're, they're lulled and, 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 and deceived into accepting uh, the apparent Messiah, the false Messiah, the Antichrist. And, and for a time, they live in the first half of it, they live in relative peace and the walls come down and, and, and the dividing lands, uh, you know, as the Arabs now want to get rid of Israel, that they will have a relative freedom and peace for a time once, once the false Christ comes, the Antichrist. But then he will turn on them and they will discover the fullness of the, uh, of the outpouring of the wrath of God uh, for their foolishness in that sense. But now the remnant will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. 
Wearsby notes that during the years of their worldwide dispersion in many places, the Jews have been subjected to threats and intimidation, even fearing for their lives. One of the occur at listening to where Israel is at today after the October 7 massacre. Yes, there's been a great grief going on, but rising in within many is a fear of what's coming, the war from the north, the nations coming from all around. They're just fearing the Holocaust all over again. But when the Lord comes, that won't be the case. That will all end when God establishes the kingdom and Christ reigns over the nations and Israel will be restored. Zephaniah ends with salvation and consolation. You see the remnant's response in verses 14 to 17. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The day of the Lord should inspire joy in the righteous because it brings about their restoration. The people of Jerusalem should rejoice because they no longer have anything to fear. They're to sing, shout aloud, rejoice and exult in God and his salvation. And verse 15 says, The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. Finally, Messiah has come in the fullness of the, of the Messianic promises. The removal of judgments and curses, curse comes with Christ, the real King of Israel. God is amongst his people who were uh, blessed with his presence, who blesses though, with his presence those who repent and return to him. As John MacArthur says, his departure just prior to Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of the temple is described graphically in Ezekiel chapters 8 to 11. But he will return as Lord and Messiah. And in that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. You see, fear paralyzes. Literally, one's hands grow weak. God is in control. They can have confidence and courage, not for selfish pleasure, but for true worship, service, and obedience to their king. And verse 17 says, and this is, this is just an amazing verse. We don't have time to really, you could do a separate sermon just on this verse alone or any of them really, but the Lord your God is in your midst a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. Uh, and the New American Standard is he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Other translations, he will sing over you with shouts of joy. And you see it here in this one. He will exalt you with loud singing. John Piper likes to refer to this as the singing God. We don't often think of God singing to us. We sing to him and about him. But he will exalt. I like the way that John MacArthur puts this as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. The Lord will exalt over his people with gladness and song, resting in quiet ecstasy over his people in whom is all delight. And you see it in Isaiah 62 verse 4. It will no longer be said... To you forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate. 
but you will be called my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord your delights in you, and to him your land will be married. We often underestimate the joy that God has in his people, as David Guzik says, and too often think God is annoyed or irritated with us, though he might have grounds to be. <laughs> Alex Mottius says this, Most often the Lord's love is expressed by the Hebrew word chesed. This is the love that issues in commitment, the ever unfailing fidelity of love, love that lives in the will as much as in the heart. Here, however, the word is a harbour, the passionate love of Jacob for Rachel, of Michal for David, the fond love of Jacob for Joseph in Jonathan, uh, Genesis 37, 3, Isaiah's devotion to gardening, of Jonathan's deep friendship with David, the devotee's delight in the law, the law of the Lord in Psalm 119, 97. This too is the Lord's love for his people. A love that delights him, makes him contemplate his beloved with wordless adoration. A love that cannot be contained, but bursts into elated singing. Let me give you a picture of God's delight, particularly focused upon Israel. Of course, we are the bride of Christ, the church, the uh, uh, the time of the Gentiles and those Jews who come during this time, but the Father looks forward to his restoration of his bride. Then he gives us a picture of the remnant restored in verses 18-20. We'll try and fly through this. The Lord promises to regather his covenant people to the land of Israel and restore their blessings. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feast. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Warren Wearsby notes that during the 70 years of captivity in Babylon and then during the, their worldwide dispersion among the Gentiles after AD 70, devout Jews were not able to celebrate their appointed feasts. Since the destruction of the temple in AD 70, the Jewish people have had no temple, altar, priesthood, or sacrifice. Of course, the types and the symbols of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Christ, including restores and sacrifices. But Zephaniah intimates that these feasts will be restored in the kingdom age. And Zechariah 14, 16, 21 support, seems to support this interpretation. And he asks, well, why would the Lord restore religious practices that have now been fulfilled. That's one of the arguments that many who don't believe in the literal physical kingdom or the millennial kingdom uh, pose. And he suggests possibly as a means of teaching Israel the meaning of the doctrine of salvation through Jesus Christ. The feast described in Leviticus 23 pictures salvation history from the slaying of the Passover lamb to the day of atonement, the cleansing of Israel, and the feast of the tabernacles. The prophet Ezekiel describes in great detail in chapters 40 to 48 the structure and services of a great temple in Israel, and this includes the offering of the Levitical sacrifices. Just as the Old Testament types looked forward to the coming of the Saviour, perhaps during the Kingdom Age these rituals will look back to his finished work. He says in verse 19, Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the Lamb 
and gather the outcast, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. The time of the return of the King, Messiah, when the Jews will be regathered and become a source of blessing to the world, fulfilling Israel's original destiny. God will act on behalf of all his flock who suffered under exile, taking steps to save the lame like a shepherd. Also, the exiles, like outcast scattered animals, will no longer suffer shame at their plight, but will rejoice that it's over. And he says, at that time I will bring you in. Even at the time when I gather you together, I will give you renown and praise. Among all the peoples on the earth, when I restore your fortune before your eyes, says the Lord. There are seven I wills in these three verses. I will gather, verse 18. I will deal, verse 19. I will save, verse 19. I will appoint, verse 19. I will bring you back, verse 20. I will give you, verse 20, and I will restore your fortunes. In verse 27, I wills of God. You see, Warren Wisby notes that God's promise is that his scattered people will be gathered, his lame people will be rescued, his sinful people will be forgiven and no longer bear the shame of their wicked deeds. I will bring you home is God's precious promise and he will keep it. And the beautiful thing is, there will be no anti-Semitism during this time. It will be wiped. And in fact, he says, I'll give you a name that the nations will praise you. Why? Because he always intended that he would bless the nations through the people of Israel. And, so the, and his redemption comes from them and through them. And so the nations are gathered back to them, as we read in Zechariah. Charles Feinberg says, Zephaniah's message centers around judgment and especially that of the fearful day of the Lord. No nation is exempt, but we can do him an injustice if we think of him only in light of chastisement. He concludes his prophecy with words of blessing and promise for the na both the nations and Israel. But these promises to the nations can only be realized when the blessings of God are upon the nation Israel. The king of Israel in the midst of Israel is the Lord God himself. Would God that were already fulfilled every day that the salvation of Israel draws nearer, that of the, uh, the world's salvation also draws nearer. The day of the Lord will be one of judgment and restoration resulting in transformed people living in joyful fellowship with him. David Alford says this, one of the great values of these prophetic writings is the seriousness of getting right and staying right in our relationship with the Lord God. Ultimately, the need for a perfect substitute and saviour is pointed to, and what he has done for us provides an entrance into his restoration and a joyful relationship with him while we await the fulfilment of God's plan. James said it this way as we conclude. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hands, you double-minded. He says, wait. As the day of judgment draws near, wait and watch. 
and rejoice as you have your eyes upon him. And continue to pray for the people of Israel for the day that they will behold him. And in the meantime, for those that are coming to faith in the redeemed Messiah, he's given them in October 7 a wake-up call. He's allowed, he allowed the horrible circumstances, as he will through the judgment of nations, to get their eyes. The interesting thing is the nation was divided just before October 7, left and right, major, major uh, demonstrations going on. Today, they have come back together and many of the liberal uh, Jews whose eyes are not on, have not been on the things of God have, have started to turn back at least to Judaism, at least to look for the God of Israel. And there is a work going on amongst the, um, amongst the redeemed remnant, amongst the uh, Messianic believers, in seeking to point. And Jews... And church leaders are praying, to, Jewish rabbis and church leaders are praying together. We need to pray both for that nation and for our own and for our own souls that we would draw near to God and be a light in the darkness. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we had a lot of ground to cover just to do that one chapter in one hit. Your word is so full. When I started, I, I, I thought three chapters, not a big book. <laughs> and it has just hit me how profound and how deep and how significant even these little book, prophetic books are that we ought to take heed. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves in a mirror that we might see us, as David talked about in the communion, we might see us as we are, not as we tend to think we are. But to be humbled and repentant and characterized by your grace and your goodness and your mercy as we reach out to the lost who don't know you yet. Not to look down upon them, whether it be Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter whether Muslim or other groups. Father, help us only to see the aching need for them to see you.